This Choircast podcast is brought to you by Sola Mysterium, celebrating the beautiful uncertainty of everything by Keith Giles. You know, anytime you and I come to talk about God, we have to admit that we're talking about a being that transcends human understanding and comprehension. Therefore, we cannot have that conversation with any degree of certainty. We have to approach the topic from a place of humility. And so I invite you to join me in embracing the mystery of Christ and to discover the endlessly unfolding beauty of uncertainty in Sola Mysterium, available now on Amazon. If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. We are so excited to have you with us today. We are kicking off a brand new series, What is the Bible? And, uh, well, it's, a, it's a, such a long topic, it's going to take a series of episodes to uh, to kind of really dig down into this whole Bible thing, uh, and we can't wait to jump in. But uh, before we do that, let's do some quick introductions. Um, my name is Keith Giles. I am one of your mini co-hosts. I'm the author of the Jesus Un series of books on deconstruction and reconstruction, and the recently released Solo Mysterium, celebrating the beautiful uncertainty of everything. And I am joined by the amazing Shonda, Katie, December, and sometimes... Matt, say hello, everyone. Hey, everyone. I'm Katie Valentine. Uh, I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control, which I realize I've never actually told people what that's about. So I'm going to take just a moment. It's about the best chapter in the whole Bible, 1 Corinthians 7, which we're going to talk about a little bit today. Um, So I'll put that out there for good measure. I'm the founder of the Metaphysical Christian Facebook community. Keith, sometimes when you say my mini co-host, I hear mini M-I-N-I, and it makes me really happy because I think of us all as like little bitty versions of ourselves, like co-hosts. Little mini, mini co-hosts. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Hello, everybody. This is December Rose, author of The Church Can Go to Hell, and I am looking uh, forward to what we're going to be talking about today about the Bible, which I guess I haven't told as basic instructions before leaving Earth, but um, Mm. I don't know. I don't know about that. (laughs) We're going to see how it goes down. <laughs> I am Shonda Ja, and I'm the author of Liberating Love, which is a 365-day devotional, and it is Covert Liberation Bible Interpretation. Don't tell other people. So I'm really excited about today's topic. Well, Shonda, this this actually is broadcasted to oh, other shoot. people. So we didn't tell you how this works. Darn it. All right. Now everyone's going to know. <laughs> Well, I am sometimes Matt, and um, I am the author of the forthcoming The Wisdom of Hobbits, which I would love if everyone who loves Middle Earth as much as I do would go pick that up when it comes out. I'm excited for that to drop, but today we're here for another episode, another series, and but not another stoned thoughts, because I hate to admit this, the stereotype that stoners sometimes forget to do shit is real and so therefore I forgot to record a stoned thought today for you. Tragic. I hate to admit that, but oh, I, I think so. I have to. I have to come clean on the air. That in itself is a stone thought, right? That sometimes 
you know, you forget to do things. Yeah. So I'm super sad because you know, as you all know, this gives me my like dopamine boost. For, <laughs> for the so blame, blame, to, blame today's shittiness on me. Katie. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do what I can. Uh, so does that mean we're just going straight to the heretic of the week then? I guess that's, uh, Is there, we're following just, the map here. Yeah. Yeah, a moment of silence. That means we'll have a lot more time to talk about the Bible, which will be super, super fun. Um, So y'all are in for a treat. Our heretic of the week is a colleague of mine. She's a wonderful scholar, um, studies the New Testament. We talk about all things sex, sex, gender, sexuality, and the Bible. So you're going to love her. Here is our heretic of the week. It's the heretic of the week. Hi, I'm Jennifer. I'm a biblical scholar, and I'm a heretic. Hi, Hi, Jennifer. <laughs> Welcome, Jennifer. It's so exciting to have you here. Um, I know you, of course, as a biblical scholar, and we were saying right before we got started, we have a wonderful email relationship because we're on this committee together for the Guild of Biblical Scholars. Uh, so I know Jennifer is a wonderful colleague, but I'm so glad that you're here. So tell us, why would someone call you a heretic? Mostly because of the way I read the Bible, but I will say that I've been put in that category because of my theology in general, not agreeing with some of the uh, elements of the Nicene Creed, for instance. (laughs) That was one of the first things that got me put in that category. So, yeah. Mm. Well, I'm curious though. Now you got to elaborate on that. What, what, okay. what exactly, by the way, I just want to say full disclosure, I'm not a huge fan of that either. So I'm just curious what your <laughs> critique, what was your critique of that, uh, of the council? I had a conversation with some other PhD students about the fact that I really didn't think that Mary was a virgin. Uh-huh. <laughs> that is like someone actually Ooh. took me to lunch to like, please pull yourself out of the ordination process. If you cannot say that you actually think oh. Mary was a virgin. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. He's like, wow. I, I love the church more than myself. You know, like I'm trying to protect, you know, I'm like, okay. Okay. So, y- you know, yeah. All kinds of interesting things happening there for me. But. Yeah. You know, that is so, that is so interesting, isn't it? That this people get, stuck and locked into like you have to agree with this or believe that and yeah yeah exactly that's interesting well i love it that we can always bring it back to constantine yeah that's <laughs> something's, right. something's always constantine's fault so that, that's really where handy. would we yeah. be without well, him yes yeah you know what well, forget going back in time with the time machine to kill hitler let's go after constantine i think that'll solve so many problems actually that's super smart <laughs> So I imagine that that uh, relationship to the Nicene Creed, the relationship to Mary as virgin, probably didn't come out of nowhere. (laughs) How is it that you ended up, what was the journey that took you from where you started to where you are now? Yeah, right. And I have two minutes or or three hours on that one, you know, like, yeah, I'm I sure we they, all have a very, <laughs> we'll edit, we'll edit this we have, but we all have, right. An interesting journey there, but I did, I grew yeah. up in a Methodist, uh, a family that was a part of the Methodist church. And I, I had actually, it's very interesting. I had a very conservative swing uh, in my late teens and twenties. I was, I was like, I was involved with a parachurch organization, evangelizing, you know, bringing, bringing kids to Jesus kind of thing. And, at that point, read the Bible very liter- relatively literalistically, you know, and I was 
devoted to the text, if you will, you mm-hmm. know, as I think we can all um, either know, we know people or we maybe were there ourselves. And so the, the Bible had to come first. And I, you know, worked really hard to make the Bible come first in my life. And even on my, my mother's ordination day. Okay. So my mother, Methodist, you know, she's, she's gone to Duke Divinity, like on the day of her ordination, I, we have a five hour drive home together. And I turn to my 20 year old self turns to my mother and says, I don't understand how you can do this because it's against God's will for women to be ordained. Oh, <laughs> snap. <laughs> that would be an awkward drive. Did you yes. just break her heart? Right. I mean, I love the fact she didn't open the door and push me out of it. You know, like we're driving <laughs> down the road, you know, like. How does a kid say that to their mother? Oh my gosh. Well, she just in defense. In yeah. defense, you you she had probably created a safe enough space for you to say that. Right. Right. You know? All the pieces. So kudos, right? kudos to her. Yes. Kudos Absolutely. to her. You know, and what she did was she told me her story. She explained to me how she got to where she was and things I hadn't heard as her daughter. You know, like I saw things happening I didn't know the story. Anyway, I love that story because it's it it exemplifies how devoted I was to the way I was reading scripture, right? And of course, um she and I have a very good relationship, just to be clear. Um, in fact, I I was her theological advisor on her uh, doctoral ministry uh, pro- project a few years ago, uh, 10 awesome. years ago. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I had a thing, like I wanted to read scripture literalistically, but I also saw all these really amazing women in my life doing these things. I ended up going to seminary because I had someone show me like a different way, you know, if you look at the the Greek in this passage, it was, it happened to be the Mary Martha passage, but if you look at the Greek, you can see it differently than the way you've had it talked to you about. And that blew my mind. And I thought, mm-hmm. what else is out there that I'm yeah. missing or could be seeing differently? So I went to seminary because I wanted to learn the Greek and the Hebrew. And I didn't know I was going to be <laughs> exposed to all these other things about church history and <laughs> the way all the theological ideas came about, you know, like, what? That blew my mind. So I had this moment where I was like, okay, there are so many, and for me, this was about women, right? There are so many women who are so devoted to the Bible and and they are applying the way they've been taught to read it to their lives and sometimes to their own detriment. Yep. And so I had this, this realization that I want, and I'm an educator at heart. And I was like, I want to go on for PhD because I want to be taken seriously in these things I've learned. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how I got to those things. And back to the other question, how did I, you know, the, where did the Nicene Creed or quite, really it's about, you know, God gave us a mind, right? If you believe that, if you believe, right, that there's a God that created us. God gave us a really amazing mind and it must, it has to be okay to use it. And in particular, in the most important parts of our lives, right? So that's where it's like, yeah, okay. I'm not sure that I agree with that element of what I've been told I should believe. And it was really, really hard for me to pull away from that and to say, but I'm going to, I'm going to respect my mind more than what I've been told I should believe. Or, you know, it's been a very difficult process to do that at least for me so I also love the fact that where you ended up is in many ways a gift to your younger self it is that's a really really no I love the fact that like what you're doing now is kind of like younger Jennifer 
here's yes. another way you can look at things, right? Yeah, I think it's yeah. beautiful. I think it's oh, beautiful. That's very touching. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I actually got goosebumps. <laughs> One thing yeah. you said just a moment ago that I can appreciate and really love is you said you respect your own mind over what you've been taught, what you learn, and what we find in Christianity in general is this folks just have, have stopped thinking or have not allowed themselves to think or imagine right. or ask questions. Right. And, you know, that's the way you discover if you, you take a toddler, they're going to constantly, well, why? Well, why? Well, why? They're going to get on your nerves. We don't, why don't Christians ask why anymore? You know, mm-hmm. they just decided whatever they told me, that's true. But if you're reading the same word that I'm reading, you should have one million hundred thousand questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That was, you know, for me. Oh, I'm sorry, Katie. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, one of the things that got me through seminary was believing this, that God gave me a brain. It has to be okay to use it. The other thing I kept holding on to was if God and for me, the Bible can't handle these questions I'm bringing, then they don't deserve my devotion. (laughs) Amen, sister. (laughs) So, you know, I know that's, that's right. Right. I love it that Greek is what really brought you to this awareness. Like so many people, it's the great equalizer for us Uh as we're getting into this work. (laughs) Right. It's this magical language that causes us to ask all these hard questions. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you're being sarcastic, Katie, but that was totally true for me as well. The first, when I was in Greek class, the teacher who was awful in every other way, he said, you know that translation is interpretation. And I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> and whole new worlds opened up to me. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So I totally yeah, resonated right? with that. Yeah. It, yeah. Greek is a frenemy. It's a true frenemy. Yes. Mm, indeed. Yes. Yeah. Well, so, so this is, this is great. I mean, so like I, I've had a similar experience on the, and, and this is one of my frustrations with, um, because so many Christians today feel as if they have so much confidence in their English translation of the Bible that they feel that they are, they're free to just flip it open and read any verse and go, aha, see the Bible says, and, and then close the book and think that that's the, that's what, you know, okay, that's it. But, um, and I feel at the same time though, I feel for people, the average Christian who, who thinks that they should be able to do that and to, and to say, oh no, actually it, I know it says that in English, but do you know that it probably doesn't really say that in the Greek or the Hebrew, right? And this is part of the problem, isn't it? Like we have these English translations that are, um, well, like you said, Shonda, they are, they're interpretations, right? And, and that, and it feels to me like so often, that's why you have these clobber passages, right? For women or uh, people who are gay or whatever, because um, it feels as if that's intentional, Right. I mean, do you agree? Do you think that do you think there's an intent there of like, hey, it would be really convenient if this said that instead of this, mm, right? My goodness, yes. I have so many random thoughts in re- like in relation to what you're saying or kind of <laughs> popping in. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, I just, you know, one of my upcoming episodes, you know, is is I'm actually reading three or four different translations of a verse on um sexual immorality you know, someone asked me, is sexual immorality different in the Hebrew Bible and than the newer Testament? Like I just recorded an episode in my little video series about where I was reading multiple translations of one particular passage because someone had asked me specifically about sexual immorality. This is my connection to Katie, right? Gender, sexuality in the Bible. 
Um, the, the sexual immorality sorry. or the gender yeah. sexuality in the Bible? Which part? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. That's what you have in common is sexual immorality. <laughs> <laughs> this just I got do. really interesting. <laughs> we said we, don't be, we really have had an email relationship, but you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> My interest in the Bible and sexuality. Okay. Yeah. Oh, sex, man. gender. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Oh, she froze um, up. Yeah. Mm. So and what you have in common with Katie, yes. Indeed. Why I keep talking or referring to sex and it's the thing I keep doing. But anyway, I'm, yeah, someone had asked, is there a difference between uh, sexual immorality or fornication in the Hebrew Bible versus the New Testament, you know, and, you know, and, and my my thought on the spot was, I love that they asked that. Um, I'm not sure that we know. And then the other thing was, well, the pr- part of the problem with I- with any of these kinds of questions is we don't actually know what they meant in either the Hebrew Bible or the Newer Testament. And so I was looking at First Corinthians six, and that one of those passages where Paul has those list of things that he's talking about demonizing or whatever, essentializing humans over, right? Um, and, you know, I'm reading the new international version, the NRSV, the NRSV updated edition and the Greek, you know, and I'm trying to, and it's it, like you said, Shonda, it's translation is you were creating meaning and we're coming out of yeah, our own yeah. biases, right? Yeah. And there, and there are a handful of passages that have just, it just kind of blew my mind. And one of the things I really care about is this conversation around marriage, um, today in our country and around the world. And there are so many passages that the translators put marriage labels into their translations that weren't there in the Greek and the Hebrew. And so we're reading modern ideas of marriage into these ancient scriptures because of the way the translators are telling us what it says we should stop that nonsense like <laughs> yeah so wow. okay can you can you can you give us an example of like a specific passage or something where it's like how it's been changed and maybe how it should be understood or read sure i could do a handful but let's do one really important one shall yeah we? yeah just so i just so you know we can get a handle on exactly what you're referring what to because this is fascinating oh my gosh this is great good good well it kind of blew my mind the first time i realized this let's talk about genesis 2 at the end of the story, at the end of that chapter, where it says, "Therefore, right here's the buildup, uh-huh. right? I'm getting, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Wife? No, <laughs> it's cling to his woman. There uh, isn't a Hebrew label for wife. Wow. There isn't or husband now yeah. for yeah. husband." There isn't a Greek noun that's different from man for husband. There isn't a Greek noun for wife. So throughout the entire Bible, we should drop husband and wife entirely. We should be saying so, man and woman. So Jennifer, are you trying to tell, tell us that there is no such thing as biblical marriage? Yes, that is exactly what it is. Or biblical marriage. Actually, you just set me up very nicely. My The book I'm trying to wrap up in the next couple of weeks is called Marriage in the Bible. I do not think it means what you think it means. That is literally <laughs> It should just be a blank. It should be a blank book. Like, you know, Marriage in the Bible. And it's just like blank pages, right? <laughs> or very, very challenging ideas about what you call 
Marriage. Marriage in the uh-huh. Yeah. Awesome. That is amazing. Uh, so speaking of uh, translation being interpretation, what's going on right now? Now that you went from condemning your mother for wanting to be a ministry to being really to becoming like your mother times 20. Right. Uh, what, what's, what's going on with you now? What's your current interest? What are you researching? What's going on? I heard you say a minute ago, you're working on a book coming out. What mm-hmm. can we expect from Dr. Bird? Mm, just so sweet. That's lovely. I care about people, you know, and I care about the way people have been beaten up by the way some people handle the Bible, you know? So yeah, that's, that's my thing about in terms of the thing contribution to the world is, wow, this is a really important collection. So let's, let's be more informed about it. And yeah, so my thing right now is I, I do have a book, as I just referred to, I do have a book coming out, hopefully um, in the next few months. Um, you know, I got involved in the, um, the conversation around marriage equality um, about 10 years ago. And when I realized how much people turn to what they think the Bible is saying on marriage, I just had to try to find a way to help educate people in faith communities around what the Bible actually is saying. So I have a couple different things out there. I have, I do have this book I'm working on, uh, Marriage in the Bible. I do not think it means what you think it means. It's very much about trying to reach just regular people. It's not for an academic. It's for people who want to think and maybe do a little work around this. But I also have a video series out. The The series is called Marriage in the Bible, a discussion among friends. And so it's created to help people in faith communities try to consider this one topic. You know, there are 10 videos. And like, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the fact that you think that God ordained marriage between a man and a woman because of Genesis one twenty eight. You know, like, let's talk about that. And let's look at what Genesis one twenty eight is actually doing. You know, so, and then I'm expecting that people are going to sit around and talk about it instead of just saying, oh, that's nice information. Like, we need people to work it through. Like, you need to create a space where you can work through what you think, own the language or the, the new ideas for yourself, right? So... That's my big, I guess my big topic or big issue right now is this thing about marriage. And um, I do think that people of faith can be okay with two men marrying with, with a trans person. And, a, you know, like, I think that people of faith can do that. And I would love to help people um, better understand where their misunderstandings are about this issue. So. Yeah, that's wonderful. <clears throat> and I love that that's, that's the place that you're operating out of, out of this that you begin with, not with, well, I mean, we have to get this biblical thing, you know, uh, understood. And, and, and it's like, no, you're starting from a place of like, I see people getting beat up by this book and that's unnecessary because the people who are using the book to control people or put them down or control them or whatever um, are doing so in bad faith, like, because the book really actually doesn't cooperate with that. Right. And I think that's, that's beautiful. Um, to be able to do that because I, and I think it's, it's such an important thing because I know for a lot of people, um, and I, I, I'm embarrassed to say, but it, but in my fundamental, you know, growing up evangelical, um, you know, for, for example, like for the LGBTQ question in, in my mind, in my heart, I didn't feel like it was fair to say to people that were gay or, or trans or whatever, that they couldn't be married, you know, because because my understanding of the Bible was that the Bible did say that. Um, 
And but all my relationships and connections with people who were gay were wonderful, and they they love Jesus, and I had no question that they did. Of course, they do, right? So my so the big hangout for me was the Bible, and 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 so it really did. That was like the final thing for me was when someone showed me like actually look look at these words. It doesn't say that. Um, it's you know, and so that work is so helpful because a lot of people what's holding them back from turning the corner on some of these things is that they do think that the Bible does say these things. Right. That's right. That's right. right. How many exactly. You just said it so nicely. Right. So many people are like, I love these people, but the Bible says, or I've been told the Bible says, and so what do I do with this? And so that's, I'm trying to meet that need. (laughs) Yeah. Good. I'm so glad. Was it, was it PBS that used to do the more, you know, was that PBS? Oh, I think it was NBC or something. Or the NBC, NBC. Yeah, the little, one of the little flying think, star thing. The more yeah, the more you do, and I have a little <laughs> thing. And while, while, I'm, while I'm listening to you, and I'm just enjoying what you're saying and enjoying your journey of how you blossomed into more understanding, greater empathy. And what I find is that the more people know, the more accepting they are. Religion in general, and probably maybe especially Christianity, can be so exclusive. And it's exclusive by what people think they know, Right. Like you just gave us, you probably will blow a lot of minds when you say the word husband and wife weren't right. in the Bible. Somebody right. put that there. It wasn't there. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so that word marriage, that's not there. And we got all these people right now up in arms about, uh, there was a lady on the Congress, congressional floor, oh, yeah. Senate floor that's right. crying and carrying on because of what she thinks mm. is there. Mm-hmm. And so I just I just think about how what we are, are Ignorance is given a bad connotation, but our lack of knowledge in areas and how that excludes us from loving, accepting, celebrating so many communities, so many people, and just being open to be, you know, be the love that God speaks about in the world because what we think we know keeps us from loving people like God would have us to. And so I just, I just love that, that journey and the more you know, the more you know. And now that you know so much, you go back. Like um, I think Shonda said, it, who you are now is a gift to your younger self because of what you know. And that younger self that was sitting there didn't know that one day she was going to be this woman talking about marriage ain't even in the Bible, y'all. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Forget what you heard. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I just love that, that the more we know. But I think as Christians, to know more, you have to believe that you don't know enough. And I think that's what a lot of where we find a lot of Christians falter is if you think, you know, can't nobody tell you nothing. That's right. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So just learning and knowing and growing is what it's about. Goodness. You all are lovely humans. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. What a lovely group of people you are. (laughs) Well, it's so wonderful to see that you're doing this kind of work, Jennifer. And, uh, and, Approaching it from the side of like you, like, again, I think, don't let me put words in your mouth, but like, it seems like you really, as you said, you love, you care about people, but it seems like you really care about the Bible too, right? You're not like, you know, F this Bible, right? You care about the scripture. (laughs) And I mean, I don't know, maybe you do, but, uh, but it's like wanting to bring these things together. Right. And, um, I think that's really beautiful. And so thank you for doing that. I think that's just a wonderful, um, ministry, quote unquote, if you want to call it that. Sure. You can call it that if you want. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't use that language, but I understand what that means. And I, I think it is that, you know, Um, I, I do the other thing, and this is different, so I don't want to dive into too much, but you know, 
there are things in the Bible that are do still relate. And that's why, to your question, Keith, I don't just kick it to the curb, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there are stories in there that help us understand ourselves better if we can see it through the right light. And it's mixed in with all this other horrendous stuff sometimes, you know? Um, so, yeah. What would you say as we as we get ready to wind down, what would you say if, if you're um, t- about to take your last 10 breaths and somebody woke up to you, <laughs> woke up to you and says, what do you hope this world will be left with concerning you? All that you do, all the work that you're doing, all the time that you have spent educating yourself on what you believe is true and getting clarity on the things that you have questioned. What would you say? What would the, what's the impression you want the world to be left with concerning you? I know that's a, that could be a, a deep introspective that's a, question. That's a good one. <laughs> that's a good question. It is what, do you hope, what do you hope to come to at the end of this? The video, the, 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 you know, the book, all that you're doing. You know, this isn't probably the final answer I would love to have. But, you know, I, I summarize what I do as critical thinking meets reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that might be it. You know, if, if I had to summarize, um, you know, like these are important, you know, like there's so much behind, I guess, that summary for me, you know, in terms of these are, these texts are powerful. Language is powerful. Language is influential. All these things are important. I don't, I, instead of ignoring that, I want to be honest about that. So um, let's be honest about what the Bible is actually saying and not saying, and then figure out what to do with it. That's at least that's where I am right now. What I'm doing. um, I think most most focused wise right now. Mm-hmm. That is awesome. That's awesome. So where can people get more? Where can people get more about you, about what you're doing, about what you got going on? How can people connect with you and see about, we want to get your book when it comes out. We want to go watch the video. We want to do everything. And we want to know everything about Jennifer Bird. PhD. Okay. Where, where can we link up with you and connect with you? Yeah. The easiest way is to go to my website, which is my full name, jennifergracebird.com. And on there, you can get to my YouTube channel and you can, you know, all the different things. You can get to the Marriage in the Bible, A Discussion Among Friends. That series is on my website, is available on my website. The introduction is available to everyone because you need to understand what the what I'm doing in that series. And then you can rent or purchase the videos there. I do have a page talking about the books I've done. I don't expect many people at all to be interested in my dissertation, but <laughs> my second book is Permission Granted, Take uh, the Bible Into Your Own Hands. It's kind of me guiding people mm. through um, having critical thinking and engaging it as you read these really important scriptures. You know, um, So that's available on there. I did the audio for... Um, uh, you know, when people listen to books instead of read them. Um, Audible, the audio book. Yeah. Thank you. I'm like, why am I drawing a blank? <laughs> um, I did the reading for that. And I, I think it's actually important because sometimes people misunderstand my tone, you know, if they uh, think I'm more optimistic than I am. So my website is the best place to go, I think. And then get to all the other things from there. Awesome. JenniferGraceBird.com. Go check it out. Thanks I want to read your books. Thanks for being here, Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been so thank fun. Thank you. Wow, that was amazing. Jennifer, thank you so much. My my brain actually grew larger during that conversation. Thank you very, very much. Uh, very cool. And um, I know she has a book coming out soon. I don't know, how, in a couple of months. So be sure to pick that up when it comes out too. Yeah, y'all check out her YouTube channels. It's really, really good. She does um, yeah. little like five minute videos about the Bible. Yeah. All right. Who's, uh, who's kicking off this topic? 
I thought you were. <laughs> I'm not sure we, am I? Oh, oh, okay. Uh, I apologize. I didn't see my name on the on the schedule there. All right, yes. Go! Hey, everybody. So it is time to jump into our uh, a topic for our new series. And as we're talking about the Bible, we figured to kick it off, we probably should just kind of really talk about like the Bible and what is the Bible, um, because there are so many kind of different versions of the Bible and, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot to dive into here when it comes to um, kind of kicking off this idea of the Bible. There's different translations, interpretations, paraphrases. Um, you know, is, is it one book? Is it a bunch of books? Uh, there's different versions of it and all that kind of stuff. So how do we want to kick this off? What's the first thing we want to, what's the first layer we want to peel back of this onion as we're talking about this topic of the Bible? I wonder if we all have like a, a gut punch basic definition. Like if someone wants to ask you on the street, what's the Bible? Like, what would we say? Ooh, well, I have an answer, but I don't think anybody would like it. I'm curious what everybody, what, what Shonda and December, uh, Katie and Matt, what do you guys think? <laughs> how would you like, so someone says to you, um, yeah, you mentioned the Bible and they're like, what's the Bible? And how would you explain the Bible to someone uh, who didn't understand exactly what it was? Mm, well, I, 20 years ago, or even just 10 years ago, I probably would have said something like, it's the word of God, mm -hmm. or it's the truth, or, you know, it's the way we, it's, it's our instruction, our blueprint for life and stuff, such other stuff that I was taught. But <laughs> as of late, I probably would say something like, um, it is a book that many use to pattern their life after, and many use, and many believe that was inspired by God. In my personal opinion, um, it's a book about God, not God's word. And it's about God in the way that those who wrote it interpret God. So my 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 definition would my description would definitely get a little bit more complicated these days <laughs> than it would, would would have been years ago. I'd have just said it's the word of God. But now I'm like, nah, it's not the word of God. It's the word of folks talking about God the way they think he exists or whatever. So that's how that's how it would kind of go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that. December. It's, it's people kind of talking about God. Um, and I, yeah, I think a basic definition, well, probably I'd be like, well, sit down. I'll get out my PowerPoint. <laughs> Stay right here in the street corner. I'll be right back. Um, but that might not be helpful. But yeah, a bunch of people talking about God and, and about their experiences and their prejudices and their biases and their joys of spirituality and that they, uh, these ancient documents that still are, um, I wouldn't say speaking to us today, but these ancient documents that are still informing us today. I'd pick a better word than inform. I got to think about this more, even though I asked the question. But. Yeah. <laughs> Shonda, what do you think? Yeah, it's interesting because, um, Phyllis Tribble wrote this book called Texts of Terror, and it kind of tells you what she thinks is going on. Um, not necessarily the entirety of the Bible, but um, but I think that's a really telling statement. I got to say, I think of it as um, as texts of texts of liberation. I actually think that every passage in the Bible is a testimony to liberation. Sometimes it's how not to do it. Sometimes it's how we fail at it. Um, but because I believe in a God of liberation, I believe that all of the stories in the Bible point us to where liberation is possible, how we can collaborate with God in liberation, and the ways in which we've fallen short and sometimes blamed that on God. That's that's how I see it. Wow. Yeah, I like that. 
which is so much more orthodox than I think a lot of people think I believe. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, Matt. Are you including me today? Just Sometimes, for now, just yeah. for this question, and then you can go back in your hole. I mean, this is where your stoned thoughts really come through this That's time. That's right. Yeah. What was the question? <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> How <laughs> would you describe the Bible? <laughs> I'm playing. I'm playing. Um, yes. Oh, gosh. I'm tempted to um, to channel my inner Jamal and say it doesn't exist, but um, Jamal no longer hosts the show. Um how would I describe the, the Bible? A very complicated wrestling with the notion of humans' relationship to God. Um, Rene Girard calls it a text in travail. And what he means by that is this, this pull from someplace to someplace, like incrementally, and that places towards an, a God who is nonviolent and liberative, liberate, liberative, is that a word? Um, away from the practice of blood sacrifice and scapegoating others in order for atonement to happen into an entire role reversal. So it would be a very complicated journey toward an understanding of God that doesn't look like maybe where it started. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah, that's good. I think, um, yeah, I kind of like December. I, I, there was a time in my life when I would have said it's the word of God and all that stuff, you know, inspired and inerrant and infallible and all that bullshit. Um, <clears throat> but now, and now I would say that it is a, it's a collection of different writings from different people at different times who are doing their best to describe their understanding of who trying to make sense of who God is and their connection and relationship and their experiences with God, which can be helpful but don't always agree. Like I love the text and travail uh, analogy because it's uh, or description because um, you know. I, whereas I used to believe, I you know I, I was into apologetics and all this stuff in in college and read Norman Geisler and J.P. Morgan and all these guys, and um, you know I, I I was convinced that no, there were no contradictions in the Bible. There were you know there was nothing like that. But you know the more you read it and study it, you kind of have to go, yeah, yeah, there are. There's actually a whole bunch. And, um, and, but then that's not a problem if you kind of take a step back and say that God, God didn't write the Bible. For me, that was a liberating idea. God did not write the Bible. People wrote the Bible and it's a book about God. And so the, I think the danger is when people now, you know, if you, if you have a certain mindset about approach to the Bible, what you'll say is you'll, you'll flip open the Bible, point, read a passage and say, God said, and the thing is, God didn't say that, you know, Isaiah said that, or Jeremiah said that, or Moses or David or whoever, like, that's what they said. That's true, we, we, we assume, but it's not necessarily what God thought or what God said. And I think being able to maybe separate those two things a little bit and say, this is their best guess uh, of who they believed God was at the time, but not necessarily like, like the word of God kind of a thing. So, so cool. I'm wondering if the next question is, is the next question kind of, so how did we get the Bible that we've got? Um, I don't know. Do we want to jump into that? Is that too technical? I don't know. We, I we mean, could. it's where all the good fights happen. I mean, I think That's the reason right. I'm excited to talk about it is like, so I had already begun to ask, you know, I was really lucky. I went to a church where it was okay to ask a lot of questions. So before I ever went to seminary, I was reading I don't know if any of you have read that book, don't know much about the Bible, um, but it, it had some of these um, 
he did a whole series, Don't Know Much About History, Don't Know Much About Science. And he did one called Don't Know Much About the Bible. And he has stuff like, hey, we tell this story about uh, Moses parting the Red Sea. Some archaeologists suggest there was a flood in the Sea of Reeds. Um, could that, you know, could that be what we were? So he talked about kind of some of those things. And so I had gotten unstuck around um, literal interpretations of most of the Bible. But it wasn't until I got to seminary and I was taking, <clears throat> excuse me, I was taking a course on early Christian literature and they started talking about the like physical altercations that happened in the gatherings of bishops in the second and third, well, third and fourth and fifth centuries as they were battling over which books got included and which ones didn't. And it shouldn't have been mind-blowing to me. I went to a progressive church. I was raised with this sense of it's okay to raise all of these questions. But it blew my mind because even though I wasn't interpreting the Bible literally by that point, I hadn't really given any thought to how it came into being, how we got the books we did and how we left out the books we did, right? It just hadn't crossed my mind. The fact that there were people physically stopped from going into the, you know, the votes, all of that stuff was mind-blowing and also pretty cool. Um, so I think that's why I'd love to hear from some of y'all who know more about that history than I do. How did we get, how did we get what we got? Well, I don't know that I know more than you do, but about it. But I've, I've know, done I've I've done a little bit of research on it, um, and so like my opinion, just full disclosure, is like, um, and I've said this several times, but when it comes to the canon of the scripture, I think it was a bad idea um, because I feel like it it whether intentionally or unintentionally, it created a bunch of problems. I believe within Christianity, so like. On the one hand, like by closing the canon, like we just decided, okay, God, you're done. Uh, nothing else is coming from you now. Anything you ever wanted to say to us, you said it 2,000 or 4,000 years ago. Um, and so we're done. God's finished talking. This is all we got. We just got to live off of this, these collection, these collected books. Um, so I don't think that's a good idea for that reason. And also what little I've read about that process you're talking about, Shonda, um, it really starts to look political. Like- you know, certain factions within Christendom were like, or Christianity were like, hey, this is our chance now that we have the authority of Rome behind us to basically decide these, the books that we like are in and the books that other Christians, they were still Christians, liked are not in. Um, and then one thing I'll just say it was really fascinating to me was, you know, again, prior to the conversation, like, kind of Constantine kind of got kicked the ball rolling about like, hey, Christians. Now that I just joined this club, uh, why don't we all have, you know, these statements of faith that say these beliefs make you a Christian? Why don't we say, you know, these are the books that 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 are, you know, our this is our book, right? And put it, let's get because like no Christians before that necessarily were like, we as a Christian movement, we need to decide, we need, you know, a, to decide what what books are right and what books are wrong. Because prior to that, um, you know, if you if you look, you can see like Tertullian and Irenaeus and Origen, all these different early church fathers. Um, they had their own personal sort of canon, if you want to call it that. Like, but not something they necessarily try to impose on every other Christian on the planet. It was just like you know they would say like, well, I these are the books that I consider inspired and that I preach from and teach from, and some of them are New Testament texts that we would we would say, oh yeah, I recognize those. You know, with four Gospels, yeah, okay. Um, but then, but some of them would include things like, you know, the Shepherd of Hermas, 
or the Didache or the Wisdom of Solomon or and like you're like I never even heard of that book. What what do you mean? But others would you know, and then they would leave out like Revelation. One of them would leave out Revelation. One would leave out like First and Second Timothy. And so, so it's funny because like it was very it was much more fluid at one point, and it was much more like these are the books you prefer, but these are the books I prefer, and that seemed to be okay for several hundred years. Um, and I I don't know I I know it's probably inevitable that at some point someone somewhere was going to say, okay, enough. Let's just, let's decide what's good, what's bad, what's in, what's out. But I, for me, I guess when I look at the process of it and the reasons behind it and the fruit of it, sort of like what it's created to the point now where the Bible has kind of become almost weaponized against other Christians or other people um, to this very day, uh, I just kind of see it as a bad idea, but that's me. So let me let me comment on that just a little bit. Um, I, so I see the I think we're jumping into talking about canon. How do we get the canon that we currently have? And the the Old Testament, I think all canons are actually very fluid um, and and continue to be. Uh, I mean, as recently as the eighteen hundreds. So this is this is not new. We just tend to think of them as being very locked. Um, the old the Old Testament canon was pretty fluid even by the time when Jesus was around. Um, the Torah was probably very set in stone. Um, but others, people are sort of quoting prophets. They're kind of quoting what we now call the writings. There's, they're not like all located in one book. So that, this kind of uh, idea of sacred scripture was definitely fluid then. Um, and for the New Testament, sorry, just to I mean, check the, in, the, the Torah yeah. was the first five books, right? Yeah, the first five books. So yeah. The ones so that Genesis, we knew was the first five books. Yeah, anyhow. exactly. Exactly yeah. the same, right? So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And interestingly, in the Jewish tradition, um, there's, I don't know the specifics of it, but there's a very particular way to count the exact number of letters and words. And they do it by like um, making one letter really large. And then they know the monk, the well, be a monk in the Jewish tradition, but the scribe um, would go back and count the number of letters to make sure that they match with what they should be. And so that, like, the Torah is very set, but the others remain pretty fluid for quite a while. The Jewish canon probably became closed in response to Christians. Yeah. So the early rabbis were like, okay, we need to set ours that's specific. Um, as opposed to like how Christians are understanding the Old Testament, which was pretty different than the way that they were. But the early Christians, so, um, you know, Keith alluded, or didn't allude to, but Keith was talking about, yeah, we have these different kind of lists. But basically, by the time we get to Nicaea, that list is set and Nicaea affirms it. And these other authors, I mean, I don't, I don't actually see Tertullian as being fluid. I don't see Tertullian as being a person that was like, this is my list. You have yours. Tertullian would have been, this is my list. Motherfuckers oh, yeah. get on board. He yeah. was a dick. Right? Yeah. He was Just because dick, his list so. didn't match someone else's doesn't mean he was fluid about it. Right. But in my opinion. And um, remind me, Nicaea is a council of church elders in the 400s. It's, yeah. it's in the fourth century. Fourth and century, I'm trying to find the exact date. Something, I, think. I think. Yeah. But the, um, but the, the, the mention we get of the books, the way that we have them, I believe is from Athena or the 27 books in the, the most churches agree, make up the new Testament uh, is from the letter of Athanasius, Athanasius in 367. Um, so the criteria, there was a lot of politics going on in Nicaea. Um, I remember um, Robin Espinoza, who is now known by, um, changed their name, is now Che Espinoza, um, in our decolonizing series, um, talked about this in a really, really fabulous way. I mean, they were like withholding food from each other. Mm-hmm. 
in order to get them to vote in in particular ways. But by the time the Council of Nicaea, um, where they are voting, not voting, but they're they're setting kind of in stone this canon, um, there's really three criteria for inclusion. Um, uh, this is very loosely speaking, but like what we can tell. One was apostolic authority. So the, the book need to ha- at least be credited to an apostle who knew Jesus and that included Paul. Right. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so someone who knew the earthly Jesus. A second one, and I think this one is really important and often overlooked, is widespread use. So those little bitty books that are only used by like little sects in Egypt, like that we now call Gnostic Gospels, they don't make the criteria because no one else is reading them. So they didn't allow kind of little bitty sects to come in with their far out books, even though I think they're cool, and say that these are authoritative uh, for all Christians. Now, whether we should be setting a, a collection of books that we declare as authoritative or not is another question. Um, but that, I don't think anyone was questioning that in these councils. Um, the third one is it had to conform to proto-Orthodoxy. And so, for instance, Jesus is fully, um, fully human and fully divine, which makes zero sense. <laughs> makes zero sense. But if a book said, like a lot of those Gnostic t- texts tend to say that Jesus is pretending to be human. Jesus is all spirit. Jesus didn't really have a body. They're not going to make the cut. Now, whether that's a criteria that you like or not is a different question. Interestingly, none of the criteria is inspired. Mm-hmm. None of these say these need to be God-breathed. They need to be the inspired word of God. So those, those are the criteria that were used. But um, even as recently as the 1800s, we see that Protestants in the Old Testament were reading those seven books that are now in Catholic Bibles, the Catholic and Orthodox Bibles. They started to get left out and Protestants stopped using them. So now Protestants have 66 books of the Old Testament instead of 72. Why? How did this happen? Um, The best theory I've heard, we don't really know. The best theory I've heard is that this is when missionaries were really um, making their impact in the world and colonizing. And that by cutting out those seven books, it made Bibles much cheaper to ship. Wow. And so that the idea that we, we have the set canon, I think, is firmly fixed in the Christian imagination. I don't actually think it's true. I think we're constantly kind of playing with that idea. Can well, I chime in and say, yeah, as a publisher, I totally understand cutting out <laughs> things in order to save on print yeah. costs. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, so going to bed, I, thank you for that. That was awesome, Katie. And the, thanks for the, the that criteria too. But see, now we know things now that they didn't know then when they applied that criteria to deciding the books, right? So for example, it would be, Someone could push back and say, Paul never met Jesus, right? He had a vision. Yeah. Well, they knew that. I mean, right. They so were. Have I. So have I. They wrestled with my, that. Yeah. My yeah. books in there. Um, and, um, you know, and we also know that several of those New Testament texts that they decided were, script, were scripture or should be added to the canon, um, Paul didn't write them. Or Peter didn't write First and Second Peter. And, you know, First and Second Timothy and Titus, pretty sure Paul didn't write them. Some There's debates on some of the other ones. So. But we're, so we're not revising it. We're not going, oh, okay, well, using that criteria, we're not going to revise it and we're going to make new copies where we're going to remove First and Second Peter. We're going to remove First. And like, so we're, we're not doing that level of revision, right? But I don't know. And then again, my, maybe I'm biased. Uh, I, I probably am. But I do feel like the Gospel of Thomas was something that there is evidence that people did read it. And that's one of the reasons Irenaeus was so pissed off about uh, Valentinus and some of his followers early on was that. So many people were like reading Thomas and following Valentinus who did, you know, he, the gospel of truth and some other 
of those texts. Um, they were people that were even like some of his bishops, people that were in churches and within his control, and he did not like that. And it was very difficult for him to kind of, you know, weed that out. So it was going on. It was sort of mingled in early on with some of the some of the early church. Oh yeah, I mean, there's going to be book. There's going to be books in that in those criteria that are going to be on the edge. Yeah, yeah, and and meet the acts. But, but yeah, but some of them I agree were like way out there and came much later. And all yeah, that. yeah. Some are, I mean, like some of the Gnostic texts are they're all gobbledygook. They they yes. make <laughs> they're all written in like secret language. I mean, they they literally don't. Most of them don't make sense. It's all nonsense yeah. words. Yeah. Yes. Although the uh, advantage of Gospel of Thomas is, is it is the book where uh, Jesus zap baby Jesus like zaps one of his friends dead and Mary his mother's like that's the that's infancy bad. Gospel of Thomas that's the infancy Gospel of that's Thomas. the infancy Not Gospel of Thomas that's right different different oh, Thomas so good so hilarious <laughs> and Mary no, makes him raise raise the kid back up from the dead love it somebody somebody called those like fan fiction it was like a religious fan fiction of the day where like people are like well we don't know what happened to Jesus in his, those missing years. So people were like, oh, I'll write a story about that. And it was just like ridiculous. It's just like the Lord of the Flies version of Jesus. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I think what's interesting is how can we know how much of the Bible is or isn't fan fiction? Just because the structure. Yeah. Just because how formal it seems to be written. Just because it seems to uh, make sense to us logically or according to what we what our own personal ideology is. How can we really know? How much of it is fan fiction, you know? And right. when I think what would about make like, it, what would make it non-fan fiction? I mean, like, what's yeah. the what's mm-hmm. the basis by which you would call it? I don't know the real thing versus fan fiction. Well, if you mean, you think it, of, is um, it historical, right? But mm-hmm. yeah, does it have to be? Does it have to be literal and historical to be quote unquote true or useful or helpful or right? Yeah, and even when you think about just how we define written works. To begin with, we have, we only have two categories, correct me if I'm wrong, fiction and nonfiction, <laughs> right? Well, and then everything, is there another category that I'm not aware of? Well, uh, the Bible, the Bible includes like, you know, it's, what is it supposed to be? It's poetry, um, apocalyptic. I say it's poems, poetry, yeah. parables. There's some history, but that's, yeah. that's hard to figure out, right? So which those are Christian you, categories though. Right, right. Yeah. And when yeah. you think about it, um, I something that I want to respond to what Katie said that by the canon is kind of fluid. I understand how it might literally be, be fluid, but I in the minds of most Christians, it is not. At least not any that I know of. It's not oh, yeah. fluid. It's what it is. Yeah. It's Matthew, it's Genesis to Revelations. That's it. It's not moving. God done spoke. It is what it is. He said what he said. And that's it. It's those books from cover to cover. It's not it's not fluid with most Christians. It might be fluid to folks who understand how the canon was put together and understand that it's moving and shifting and have the knowledge that you all have. I'm learning things now just listening to you. But for most people who who, who practice Christianity, that Bible is not fluid at all. It, they, they, don't, they don't want you to add to it nor take away from it. And they don't care that it was both added to and taken away from to get put together <laughs> in the first place. Thank they you. Don't, that, they don't that, care that, about that part. You yeah, know, yeah. I, I think of it as an anthology. You know, while we were, while I was listening earlier, I was thinking, you know, the Bible was probably one of the first anthologies <laughs> of authors, all these authors put together. That's what an anthology is, right? Do I got that word right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, and none of them were neither conscious of nor consenting to their works being collected, canonized, or called the word of God. None of them had anything <laughs> to do with it. All the authors that are part of this anthology didn't have anything to do with it, being put together and called that. And I, I was just trying to write a short story for the New Yorker, and they stuck it into this book. That, yes. <laughs> somebody just snatched my book. And this is, you know, it would to me it'd be like the modern day equivalent of somebody going to the library or searching online for all the stuff that they like and slapping it in a book and saying, This is the word of God, and like I'm gonna sell it to everybody now. I didn't get their permission, I didn't go back and I didn't raise them from the dead and ask them what the hell did you mean by that? You know, I didn't I nothing. I'm gonna just inter- it's what I said it was. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, so- and that's what I think about when we're talking mm-hmm. about the Bible. So it's interesting because um, we're talking about like what makes it canon. I do a lot of pulpit supply and I do a lot of pulpit supply in progressive churches, right? And the number of times in the past few years that the churches have said, go ahead and choose the gospel text or we're using the lectionary text text, and also give us your contemporary reading um, because they're trying to help us think about the word of God in how we encounter it today. And so it might be a poem. It might be, you know, I used an op-ed from a local paper as our contemporary sacred scripture because it was talking about the safety of children in the face of gun violence, right? So, I mean, I kind of love this idea of playing with canon a little bit. But speaking of canons, um, I know that we had wanted to talk a little bit about our favorite uh, translations and in the Jennifer Bird, uh, in our conversation with Jennifer, you heard me talk about how I had a Greek teacher who said that translation is interpretation. So anything we're reading has been very intentionally interpreted, which is why we have so many versions of it, because there are so many different ways of translating and therefore um, interpreting the text. But how do you decide which is the right Bible to use? Yeah, that's a good Yeah, Because obviously good there's only one right answer. I'm of just course. Kidding. Well, but see, but actually, here, here's what's funny. I, I want we're going to go around right now. We're all going to talk about these are our preferences. But see, this is going back to what I was saying. There was a day when every Christian thought this way, and it was like, I like this, and I don't like that. And it's and I love that we all have the freedom to say this is my preference. I, this is what speaks to me. This is what works for me. Um, and so, yeah. So I know we've all got our own different different uh, answers to that question. And there's lots of things out there. But real quick too, there's also the differences between right? There's um, translations, um, paraphrases, right? And um, what's the third one? Dynamic equivalences. Yeah. So yeah. So sometimes people don't know the difference. They'll say, I love the message translation. It is not a translation. (laughs) What I mean is Eugene Peterson did not sit down with the Greek text and, you know, go through and translate the words from Greek to English. He took an English translation and put it in his own words. That's a paraphrase. Not, and and there's room for all kinds, right, of those things. So who wants to jump in first and say, what's your favorite, uh, your go-to translation? I'll go first. Okay. <laughs> My go-to, and I believe it's a translation, <laughs> because I actually didn't know, uh, well, I knew there was a difference, but I always thought the message of the Message Bible in general as a translation. Until, you know, we talked about it. And I was like, oh, that's not really translation. It's a paraphrase, right? So I never thought about that. But my favorite version of the Bible, I am going to go say translation or paraphrase because, you know, only the Lord. I, th- I think it is a translation. It, <laughs> it is, an, in, is the NLT, the New Living 
translation. I guess the translation says translation is in the title, right? Can't you? Yeah. True. So new living translation. And then my paraphrase would be amplified. Is amplified a paraphrase Bible? Uh, it actually says translation. Amplified is what I'm looking at. Yeah, I think amplified is like word for word. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So NLT would be mine. I just find it to be just a little, just enough. It's just, it's a little, it's, it's saved and it's hood at the same time. It just got just the right <laughs> amount of hot sauce on it. It's a little bit gangster. And I like it. I, I see the NLT as like, you could be reading the Bible when it's that girl that's like chewing gum real hard and patting her weave like that. You know, I don't know. I just, that's a version of the Bible that I see the NLT. <laughs> oh man, I've never heard it described that way, but that's, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, I should I say like real it. quick, I've got, a, I've got a list here uh, provided to us um, that's got a list of all the translations and it'll say, under paraphrase, because you, you made a comment about how like NLT is New Living Translation, so it's the word translations in the name, it must be a translation. But just so you know, there's a book, there's a version called the Passion Translation, and it is a paraphrase. Now, see, so, that's why I just, the version of the Bible that I like. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's I the NLT, it. whatever that thing is. I kind of yeah. like it a little bit. You know, for me, my favorite is uh, the one that I go to the most, at least, is the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, um, partly because a lot of the scholars I um, appreciate think that it's the closest you can get if you're not reading the Greek. That's not necessarily all, you know, the only version that's uh, trying really hard to adhere to the Greek. Um, but my main reason for loving it is if you go into an evangelical bookstore and go up to the front desk and say, do you have the NRSV translation? They get really cranky. And then I, I like to, this is what I do when I'm in a, I'm in from out of town and trying to kill time. I'll go into a Christian bookstore and be like, do you have the NRSV? And when they say no, I'll shake my head and say, that's sad. You know, I've been studying the Bible and it turns out it's the most accurate translation don't know why you don't carry it. And then I leave. So that brings Shonda me great joy. Shonda terrorizing Bible bookstores. I like terrorizing Bible bookstores. Hey, man, like they don't carry my books. <laughs> <laughs> but I got to say, when I was a kid, um, you know, we had to read the entire Bible in fourth grade at my church. And the gift we were given at the end of that process of studying it together was a copy of the Good News Translation. And because I get a little anxious about the message and the ways it narrows how to interpret the text. Uh, when somebody would drop by the church that I was pastoring and wanted to read the Bible, I would grab them a copy of the good news because it was close enough to the text for my taste, but it was easy and accessible. Um, so that's another one I used to love going to. What about you, Keith? Um, well, I, I know I've actually answered this question <clears throat> more than once before, so I'll, I'll be brief. Um, when it comes to the... Um, the, the Hebrew Bible, the, the what we call the pardon me, the old old covenant, Old Testament scriptures. Um, I do prefer the Septuagint. It's just what I prefer to the to the Masoretic version. And um, the particular edition is the Orthodox Study Bible, um, published by Thomas Nelson. And I only look at the Old Testament in that one. I don't read the New Testament in that one. And the New Testament I prefer is the New Translation by David Bentley Hart. Um, I think there's a new edition coming out in March, actually. So updated notes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that's that's my go-to when it comes to New Testament. And just Why to check, you, you all... Yeah. Sorry? Oh, yeah, explain what the Septuagint is. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, so the Septuagint is actually... 
it's a, it's an old version. It's technically, it sounds weird to say this because it's a joke. People sometimes say about the King James, like, well, the King James was good enough for Jesus and Paul. It's good enough for me. Um, but the Septuagint actually was the Greek uh, translation of the uh, Hebrew Bible um, that was used. It was around when Jesus was around and Paul was around. And actually what's really crazy is sometimes in your New Testament translations, when Jesus and Paul will say, you know, as it said, as it is written, or as it, as Isaiah said, and then they'll quote. If you notice, if you have, if your Bible has a Masoretic, which is the, it's a different one, an up, updated one that came later, um, that you'll notice that they don't line up; they're slightly different, and that's because the quotations by Jesus and Paul when they're quoting are, is from the Septuagint, which was the Greek uh, New Testament that they had, and so. Uh, the reason I prefer it is just that there are not not across the board, but there are some certain key passages that when you compare the Septuagint to the Masoretic, they are pretty significant changes or just differences that um, given those choices, I highly prefer the Septuagint, at least in those specific cases. Yeah, so I want to highlight just like one thing there. Um, the the oldest Masoretic texts we have are indeed more recent than the Septuagint, but the literary tradition of the Masoretic text, remember I talked about how the Hebrew scribes or the Jewish scribes were like counting every specific letter. So the copy tradition is more precise. So there, the Masoretic texts of the Hebrew Bible are pro- probably older, or, what is it? The, the copy tradition is much older than the copy tradition of the Septuagint. Even though the so for everyone, just we, to keep in mind. Even though the copies that we have of the Masoretic are like 400 years after the Septuagint. Your copy is only as good as the copy it came from. Right, right, right. Right? And so the copy tradition, like the Jewish, the, the Jewish rabbinic and later scribal tradition are super precise. If a copy was wrong, they discarded it. There's none of this put in marginalia uh-huh. like Christians would do. Right. So they kept everything very, very precise because they right. had checks and measures. And that's why they counted the number of letters and the number of words as right. they were making their copies. Um, so there's more safety checks in the Jewish tradition than in the Christian tradition for copies. So can I, but just, just for clarity. And I'm not an expert on the Masoretic text. Yeah, but. yeah. But the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, uh, which is the Septuagint, wasn't done by gentiles right it was done by jews no, it was done by jews in alexandria yeah, okay. yeah 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 but but that's copied and copied and copied it's not like we have the original translation of the septuagint right but like the new Testament. they don't all agree with each other either right but the most the, the ones the, the best ones that we have that are preserved are actually in christian monasteries right true too so you know it's like just it's it's not a clear-cut kind of thing yeah. Um, okay, so my favorite, yeah, my favorite translation is, of course, the ones that I do, um, because that's what makes it fun. Um, so I learned Greek and Hebrew, so my Hebrew is really, really rusty. But um, if I'm preaching or doing an article or writing, then I usually do my own translations. But of course, I consult others. Um, so the two that I consult the most would probably be the New Revised Standard Version. And they don't get everything right, but they are pretty good. And then I'll compare that. And believe it or not, what I'll compare it to is the King James Version. I'm going to say that with a big caveat. Because the King James Version, or the New King James Version, because uh, the King James Version is a very, it does very literal um, a translation. And it captures some nuances of ambiguity that I think should sometimes be preserved. Sometimes we don't know what the verse says, and the King James Version actually does a good job of acknowledging that. But... 
with the, um, I think this is what may be helpful for everyone. There's no such thing really as the Masoretic text or the Septuagint or the Greek New Testament. Those are all additions because we have multiple manuscripts of all of those. So like, there's no such thing as I'm copying, I'm using the Greek text of the New Testament. What I'm using is someone's edition that they've made from 5,000 different manuscripts. When I'm reading from the Septuagint, what I'm reading is the compilation of many copies of the Septuagint, and then scholars determine which ones are most likely to be most accurate. When I'm reading the Hebrew Bible, um, most, most Bibles use a Masoretic text to translate for the Hebrew Bible. You're reading an edition from many, many, many papyri and books that they c- compile together to make the best edition that they can. So there's no, like, we don't have originals of any of these. So I, I right. think that's a fun way to think about it because we're always, we're always reading someone's interpretation, even, even in the original languages. We're reading someone's interpretation, right? There's so we don't have like we don't we don't we don't have any two of these manuscripts that agree with each other a hundred percent. So there's a whole science for determining what verses make it in and what don't. So the kind of the best example maybe is from Mark one one. Um, some Bibles will say, um, "Well, I should just read it out loud." While you're while you're finding that, I just want to comment on the part where you said <clears throat> there aren't there aren't there aren't two manuscripts that agree with each other. So while you're looking for that, I think that's a something people have people are non-believers have a hard time with the Bible in general because yeah. there is so much disagreement and there is um so there is contradiction within the Bible itself. I used to think not. I used to be like, no, there's no. And people used to try to uh, do apologetics to try to explain away the contradictions. They're in there. They exist. And I think that's why people who aren't not Christian or who aren't who are Christian, but questioning or whatever, the whatever it is. This is one of those things. The manuscripts don't agree. Right. The books don't agree all the time. It doesn't always make sense. And that's how, you know, man is involved. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's uh, that's also the the thing that's um, you know our, our inability to admit that there are there are errors, there are contradictions. Like, and that that's why one of the reasons I got I got tired of apologetics because I just after a while I realized I smoke in mirrors. Like, why am I trying to pretend like no, no, I know this says this and that says the op- total opposite, but here's why it kind of really doesn't. Yeah, like sure. <laughs> no, it is what it is. <laughs> I would say the differences are how I do know that God's involved. Hmm. Explain that. Right. Like, I, yeah, I, yeah, I don't want a pristine copy that has no room for my conversation. Like the errors, the errors, the, the differences allow us to have our own voice. Right. Like yeah. the, those, those differences allow us to enter into the conversation. And to be part of the story. So I actually really love those. I don't, I don't particularly like collating a bunch of ancient Greek texts and trying to do that work, but I am super grateful for scholars who do that. Well, and let me, um, so let that me clarify. I can see that. Yeah. Let me clarify what I meant by God is not involved. Men, cho- men chose which books they wanted to canonize. Men chose, like we, Shonda spoke earlier about folks getting threatened and all kind of stuff, tortured and whatever to keep from, you know, to vote, however that happened. Um, I'm not going to say God wasn't a part of the process. I'm going to say he wasn't leading it uh, because if he was, 
<laughs> I don't see it going that way in my interpretation of the Lord. I don't see it going out, going, going down like that. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not saying that God wasn't involved with, with the entire, the like high up version, you know, from the sky, looking down version of this thing. I'm just saying men chose, men chose what to put in there. Men chose how to translate it. Men chose what it should say. Men even chose to change the damn what it said. So to make it match uh -huh. what they wanted it to say. Yeah. Men yeah. controlled this process from the top to the bottom. Period. Yeah. I I guess I guess where I'm coming kinda of, kinda of coming in is I don't think that there's a pristine Bible up in heaven that we've Thank screwed you. up. Right. No, no. I just think there's I just think there's all the messy versions that we have and I like the mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I kinda like the mess. Um okay, that one little verse from Mark and then I'll I'll get out of professor mode, I promise. Okay. Um so uh, in your Bibles, it may say the be Mark one one the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, and then in some Bibles there's a little asterisk that says like the Son of God. So that tells you that some manuscripts don't include the Son of God and the sorry I didn't say that very clearly the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ comma the Son of God with a little asterisk and the asterisk at the bottom or the little footnote at the bottom will say some ancient authorities don't include the Son of God. Mm -hmm. So that tells you that some manuscripts don't have that little descriptor and some do. Well, does it make a big difference? Eh, not a huge difference, but it means that probably some ancient um, Markan manuscripts or manuscripts that included the, the Gospel of Mark didn't think that either didn't think that qualifier needed to be there or didn't yet think that Jesus was the son of God by verse one. Yes. Right. That's so that's I kind of that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's the one. Right. That's so that's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So in fact, you're, so it's just a good way to recognize whenever you see that there's not one Bible, there's billions, not billions, thousands of little manuscripts. And then we put them together in this thing that we call the Bible, yeah. which kind of leads me to the Jamalism. Mm -hmm. I'm going to defer to Keith and Matt on this because Jamal was very famous to have said there's no such thing as the Bible. Or the Bible doesn't exist, yeah. The Bible doesn't exist, yes. <laughs> yeah. well, as, as, someone, as someone who is not a native Javanji speaker, but I have, <laughs> I have studied Javanji for about three years, um, what, what I believe Jamal is saying, that when he says the Bible doesn't exist, obviously I have several in my house, so they do exist. But what he means is it doesn't exist um, apart from an artificial process by which, as we've talked about, people got together over several hundred years and decided what that thing should be. In other words, it was artificially sort of compiled and created and there was an agenda behind it and it's, it's still being used to sort of like, you know, uh, control people, coerce people, manipulate people. Uh, there's a power kind of thing behind it. So I think what he's trying to say when he says the Bible doesn't exist is to wake people up to the idea that the Bible is not one book, you know, like it's one book, uh, the author is God. It, it it fell out of the sky. God dropped it out of heaven, bound in Corinthian leather. You know, like not like that. So I, I and I agree with him on that on that perspective. Right. Right. The Corinthian leather. That's a nice touch. Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> bound in Corinthian leather. Nice one. Available at your local Baptist bookstore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as yeah. we're uh, as we're wrapping up our this very beginning of our series, you know. I'm thinking about, I had mentioned at the beginning that I'm fascinated by the politics of how the Bible was constructed, but I also said I really do believe that the Bible is a text of liberation, is um, a consistent over and over again testimony to liberation. 
So my favorite church father is um, is Origen. Uh, don't look him up because you'll find some very disturbing things. But <laughs> see, don't in the, yeah, 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 no, no, no. His origin late late one hundreds, early two hundreds. Um, so when they're starting to figure out which books do we want in, which books do we want out, which are going to help set up this religion to ripple out. Origins, the one who makes a very strong case for two books, and they're my two favorite books in the Bible. He makes a strong case for James. They're trying to get rid of James because it's too Jewish. Um, And and Origins, like, you can't get rid of it. It was written by the brother of Jesus. Now, nobody thought it was written by the brother of Jesus. Origin didn't think it was written by the brother of Jesus. But by making that claim, he you had to keep it in, which I love because it's one of the books that other than, well, other than the Hebrew Bible and other than the teachings of Jesus are clearest about rich people are trying to fuck you over. Why do you keep siding with them? Uh-huh. You're supposed to be on the side of the poor because those are your people. Um, so I love James uh, uh, and I'm so glad that he fought for it to be in. He also fought for the book of Revelation to be kept in. I recognize these days how the book of Revelation has been horrifically co-opted by fundamentalists and evangelicals. Um, And so it is very odd for me to say it's one of my favorite books. But back in those days, everyone knew it was about the Roman Empire. Everyone knew it was a word of comfort and encouragement to people who were being oppressed by politically exploitive um, people who held all the power, right? And Origen knew that generations of oppressed people, generations of colonized people, generations of exploited people would need that word of encouragement. And so they wanted to get rid of Revelation because it was about Rome and they were trying not to piss off Rome. And Origen's the one who's like, no, no, it's a metaphor. It's not about Rome. It never says it's about Rome. It's just metaphorical, um, which preserves that book as a source of comfort and encouragement to many, many, many colonized people for many generations to come. So even though it was a political act determining which books got in and which ones didn't, sometimes I think those politics were also divinely inspired. Um, So that's my little uh, apologetic for the liberationist tendencies of the canon. But real quick, something really fa- I found really fascinating about the book of James, because I always liked James as, uh, early on, too. And um, it blew my mind the day someone pointed out to me that the, if you lay the book of James side by side with the Sermon on the Mount, they track. And that was shocking to me. Like, yeah, isn't that cool? Like what James is doing is basically it's almost like he's got a copy of the Sermon on the Mount over here and he's writing his letter expanding on the ideas that Jesus goes through in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a commentary. Yes, yes. And how funny it's, and so then I find it really fascinating that these later church fathers are like, yeah, let's throw that out. Yeah. What? Oh, yeah. (laughs) The Sermon on the Mount was also very Jewish. That's the other thing we don't talk about. It's also very, it's very orthopraxic, right? It's, It's very much like, if you want to be like your father in heaven, then you will do these things because these are the things God does. God cares for the poor, cares, he loves those who, who hates him, blesses those who curse him. And that's why you should do those same things, right? Um, so very much in that in the practice of our faith, um, which I love. So my my closing thought would be that in as much as what is written has a foundation in uh what I would consider um, the core of God, as I understand God to be, which is love first and most, 
and peace, peace among the brethren, unity, um, kindness, charity, you know, those things that are listed in the scripture. <laughs> what is it in the Corinthians? Uh, you know, and it says, you know, above all these things is love. And if you don't have that, uh, you know, it's like a loud clanging symbol or whatever. You just make a noise. You just full of shit, basically. Um, so for me, it, what in so much as the scripture, whatever the scripture is, whatever the book is, whatever the <clears throat> translation or paraphrase is, has a foundation in that. For me, it's inspired by God. At any time, the path diverges from that to either condemnation or or confusion or division or anything that can be weaponized and anything can be weaponized, you know, even love can be weaponized. Um, but anything that diverges from that to me is, it may, it is, is man-made. Now the whole Bible by itself is man-made, like you guys say, but if there is a, if it, it to me, if it has a foundation in the core of God, then it's inspired by God. That's, that's the way I feel about it. If I can find it in the core of God, at least what I believe, um, got it to be, then I will say that's inspired by God. As soon as it goes away from there, that's that's where flesh enters in for me. I don't know about anybody else. <laughs> that's good. I said, y'all hit me up if you want to learn Greek or Hebrew. Okay, I'm gonna do, we, can, sure. we can do a little heretic <laughs> class or something. Uh, it's it's remarkable what you can actually learn with just um, the alphabet is is often enough to get you to. Um, just be able to look up some words in pretty accessible dictionaries. Um, also, in the bonus round, I will talk a little bit about um, why you shouldn't rely on the King James Version as your most accurate translation. Awesome. Love it. Yeah. Maybe because it starts out with King James. <laughs> that, some, there's some truth to that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the King. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> listen, y'all, uh, I want you to head over to the website, which is outdated, but still oh. has some great information. <laughs> oh, my gosh, a little dig. And links and um, awesome things over there. Go to www.heretichappyhour.com and check out what we got going on. And keep checking back. Because it's going to be some new things eventually. So just keep on checking back. (laughs) Yep. Who's in charge of the website? I feel, I don't I feel know. like we're, this is the thing we should explore right we'll, now. We'll ask around. We'll ask around. To, to, to very busy people who are doing awesome things. Oh, gosh. I, I kicked them off. <laughs> um, okay. Also, come and join our free Facebook group, Heresy After Hours. It's a great resource. There's tons of heretics, people who are deconstructing, reconstructing, and reconstructing, and everything in between. If you just type it into your Facebook search bar, Heresy After Hours, you'll find us right away. Uh, that's right. And, um, by the way, all of you who support us on Patreon, we wanted to say thank you so very much. We love you. We appreciate you. Uh, we couldn't do this without you or we wouldn't want to do it without you. Put it that way. Um, and if you don't support us yet, um, please consider going over to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour. Um, sign up for really any of the different tiers there. Although I should say one of those tiers on the Patreon will absolve you of all of your sins. So you might consider that one. Um, (laughs) For all time, by the way, for all eternity. And uh, but yeah, check that out. And you know, you'll unlock so many amazing, cool things. Like we're about to record a bonus uh, to this episode. We have so many extra bonus episodes, uh, additional interview footage that isn't um, dropped into the podcast with some of our amazing heretics of the week. So go check that out over there. And you will also get access to the private Facebook group for Heretic Happy Hour members only. 
And I'm not promising that it will give you absolution, although maybe it'll buy you a couple of indulgences. If you rate and review our iTunes or any wherever you happen to listen to this podcast, it helps people like you help people find people like us. We are so grateful for you getting the word out so that we can connect with an even larger group of folks. Mm-hmm.